this is going to be a bit different. Although the first time I, I interviewed you was about the ec economics of violence, which right. uh, we got a lot of good response from that because it's not a space that we typically cover, but it was one that people were obviously very interested in. So uh, I want to be completely accurate with the title because the title to me is, uh, besides you being a co-author, was so uh, riveting. So it's in the Journal of Financial Compliance, and the article is, it's not the algorithm, it's the ethics. So um, let's talk a bit about that, but let me premise this way. When we talk about ethics and compliance, as we just briefly mentioned um, offline before we started this, I've been fortunate to have been in this space for decades, and um, being part of uh, ACAMS and ABA and now RightSource, I've always been impressed with the number of compliance officers or risk officers, operational folks that do this sort of work uh, because of their passion. So whether it's anti-human trafficking, dealing with elder abuse, I mean, I, you and I could come up with a lot of examples of the staff that are involved in this doing this, but that's not the case institution-wide, unfortunately, in some situations. So give me a sense of what drove you to craft this. Let's talk about some themes, and obviously I'll ask you some follow-up questions. Great, excellent. So John, it's great to be with you again. Um, it, it, it's an honor. I mean, you you are an important voice and leader in this industry for many years, and uh, and I'm just so happy that um, we've gotten to know each other through the years and, and that you continue to talk with me. So thank you for that. Um, so the the article title uh, it's it's not the algorithm it's the ethics came out of I would say uh, a lesson I learned very slowly too slowly um, I, I should be embarrassed to admit to which is over the past three to four years I had been attending events with you with the American Bankers Association with others to um, give you know, plenary sessions to talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the idea what that the the hosts always had and that I shared is that if we demystify the technology, people will become more comfortable with it. And if they become more comfortable with it, they'll adopt it. So the idea is explain AI, explain machine learning, so that way we can get technology adoption and innovation into the compliance BSA, AML, CFT space. And what we, what I observed over several years of doing this is that we were demystifying and people were loving the content, but they weren't adopting technology. Mm -hmm. um, so AI adoption was very slow in, in our space and in our industry. Now, I actually also agree with you that um, I have not yet met a person in the compliance space that doesn't care about their job, that right. doesn't actually believe that they're there to actually combat human trafficking and drug trafficking and terrorism and all of those things. So it was a disconnect. Like why is, if, if technology exists in so many aspects of our lives with improved efficiency and effectiveness, and it's been proven to increase efficiency and effectiveness in the compliance space, why is the adoption not happening? So um, I took about six months or so, and I worked on this idea of like, why is it not happening? 
um, and so it's not the algorithm, it's the ethics, is I don't need to demystify algorithms for you anymore. I don't need to explain what is a neural net versus a cluster, which I did. I spent a year explaining neural nets and clustering algorithms and the difference. That's not the way. It's not the algorithm. It's the ethics. And so I framed it in the context of ethics, and that was the motivation for the story. You know, the um, ethics writ large, I mean, I, I think part of the challenge has always been, for, as I said before, for decades, is explaining to senior leadership that you may or may not be part of as a compliance officer, the value proposition of working with law enforcement, of dealing with these issues. And so what we've always sort of clamored for in our, in our world is when there's a successful story, a successful narrative, to be able to explain that to leadership, which, you know, look at the end of the day, as they used to say at ABA, banks are not a utility. Okay, I get it. But also it's important to know that the end result is an improvement societally. So it seems to me, and you tell me if if you feel differently, that the bigger problem is, as we've just said, not the tried and true compliance officer, whether they're high up on leadership or not, it's convincing those whose job it is to increase revenue the value proposition of doing things from a positive, proactive standpoint versus simply complying with the laws and regulations. So I, I wouldn't disagree with that, um, but I actually think that structurally, um, and, and I'll get into kind of you know how I frame frame this as an ethical question. But structurally, a lot of the problem is this. We've got this triangle between the the front lines on compliance um, and uh, the regulators, the bank examiners, and law enforcement. So, for the front lines in the financial institutions to actually combat human trafficking and drug trafficking, they need to create data that's helpful and relevant to law enforcement. But the bank examiners aren't measuring how well they're doing at creating data relevant to law enforcement. They're measuring, our, is your SAR filing rate up by 10% or down by 10%, which is not the same thing at all. So right. what's broken is I wouldn't actually point at the C-suite of the bank, although your, your point is a fair one. Okay. I think the bigger progress that we can make is by focusing on um, measurement of the output as opposed to the input, meaning a SAR is an input. We don't know if a SAR is good or bad. We just know that a bank file a SAR. Right. That's an input. The output is um, some sort of law enforcement action, which either disrupted uh, um, a, a criminal network of some sort or led to arrests or convictions. And we don't measure that. That feedback loop doesn't come in. And so the the bank examiners show up and they they say, well, you know, what's your SAR filing rate and what vendors are you using? and and um, and that's what's really, I think, um, the the biggest area that we should be addressing. So is it as simple as what um, the private sector has been, I would argue, correctly complaining about for years and that this three-legged stool of AML, it's law enforcement, the regulators and the private sector, has compl almost completely different goals, as you just said. You know, it's timing issues on SARS, it's following your po your policies, updating those policies, the training, all that sort of stuff. And then there's there's a lot of um, uh, 
whatever you would call it, uh, either formal criticism or informal criticism that you didn't file in this case, and you file as opposed to explaining, having law enforcement explain to the regulators, look, at the end of the day, it's it's about the information both efficiently getting to us and valuably getting to us. And until the regulators are do are, are assessing that, we're still going to have this problem, algorithms or not. That's exactly right. Yeah. But it is through algorithms we can actually start to solve that problem. Okay. Um, we can share algorithms. We can use federated learning, transfer learning, these um, ideas that I've been working on for a number of years now, sure. and, as have others, to actually share knowledge without sharing data. So you can see a world in which banks share, um, law enforcement shares with the private sector, um, and no data is ever shared. Um, we need to get there. This capability exists all over on our smartphones and our laptops and in our cars and so much of our lives. So the, the motivating question back to this article is, if the technology exists and we know it exists and it's proven empirically to work significantly better, why haven't we adopted it? And I think that's a more interesting question, um, which is I think I think we, we diagnosed several years ago that, you know, if law enforcement could give the feedback back to the private sector, we could improve our, our model building inside of a financial institution. Um, we now have the ability to do that and address data privacy and law enforcement sensitive concerns. What would be an example of sharing information that's not data? Is it typologies? What's your, what's your take on that? So think of a typology, uh, John, that um, uh, uh, that's out in, in the world today in the private sector, a typology. And then let's say that FinCEN sends out a notice to say, hey, here's an updated typology. Mm -hmm. Somebody types it up in a Word document, saves it as a PDF, and sends it out. Right? Um, what if instead of just the PDF, what if they sent out the algorithm too and said, here's the algorithm that correlates with this typology? And what if they sent that out, FinCEN sent that out to all financial institutions and say, hey, here's an emerging trend, here's the, here's the write-up, here's the description. And here's an algorithm that addresses the features that we've just described in words. What if one bank uh, observes a trend that neither FinCEN nor other banks have observed? What if they could do the same thing? What if they could say, here's, here's what we're observing, um, but we're not going to share any um, customer data with anybody. Mm -hmm. But here's a, here's a trend we're observing and shares the algorithm. So it's about, it's about sharing either the, the algorithms or the changes in the algorithm. So you're sharing some math, you're sharing some equations, that's it. So uh, one of the reasons I went to law school is I could never do math, right? <laughs> one of the many reasons. Um, describe in layman's terms an algorithm. I mean, I, obviously high level, I know what you're yep. talking about, but I think sure. that's that's where it's not, not, it's not a disconnect. I get, I get your point, I think it makes a lot of sense. If they could share the, is, so are the algorithms only gonna be valuable to institutions have that have certain systems to plug those in? So let's look at a smaller bank versus a large bank, and you're gonna quote, share this algorithm. Give me an example, high level, how that would work. So first of all, what is an algorithm? An algorithm um, is 
it's it's a variation on the typologies you're used to. So you have some rules. So you you hire somebody from law enforcement who's been tracking down criminals for years, and they know to look for um, you know cash above this level, an average daily balance of this amount, uh, velocity of movement, frequency, um, these days of the week, these geographies, right? Okay. Um, those are rules that are human generated. Right. Um, uh, an algorithm is that just in terms of math. So the, you know, the mean is $100 and the standard deviation is $10, right? right. So you take that and you take all of those um, features mm-hmm. um, and you generate a, a, a mean and a variance. Um, and so now you've got a mean and a variance. So you've now got mathematical measurement of a lot of these terms that a uh, somebody in your FIU or law enforcement agency might or or FinCEN might say, hey, here's the, here's the latest trend in the behavior. You're just putting it into math. That math can fit into any software, any program. You don't need to be using vendor A, B, or C okay. to to understand the math. It's 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 really simple. Now, um, the 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 federated learning project that that uh, Juan Zarate and I are working on with Consilient, that automates all of that and makes it more simple. But you can do it manually. You can have, um, you can have, like I said, a blast from FinCEN go out with the math included, and anybody can use it of any size bank. Have you had, and, and obviously what you're working on can be considered proprietary, so I'm, I'm not asking you to, to, to uh, outline that, but have there been, let's put it this way, have there been conversations since you used to be in the government, so did Juan and others. Have there been conversations with uh, public center, public sector counterparts about this conceptually? And is there, uh, are, are they receiving it as a possibility? You know, just in, just in general, because you know, I, there's been talk for a long time about better feedback, more specifics. As somebody right. who helped helped deal with the creation of three fourteen A and B, right. totally disappointed how that turned out. Totally disappointed. It was right. not the way we crafted it, but we didn't mm. know the technology back then. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the feedback loops, right? So right. I think anything. The best example uh, outside of AML that I'm aware of in terms of information sharing are the FSI SACs. I've actually interviewed folks from from that world sharing cyber information. So if we could do something similar in this space, I know it's not exactly the same, that'd be great. So long-winded way of saying, are you getting some receptivity from government folks that great concept, come back to us when you have more, or is it, yes, this actually could really work for law enforcement and we want to see this pursued? Getting great feedback um, to include at the 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 uh, the last um, partnership forum that I attended uh, with you that you you hosted with uh, with a bunch of law enforcement um, and have had uh, have regular outreach with um, the U.S. as well as global regulators um, and uh, and monetary authorities on this. So the the um, the feedback is great, but really what matters is is the empirical results. I I um. I was overseas last week, um, speaking with government officials of a, uh, of a of another country, and I described the uses in biomedical research of federated learning. 
So there's an example that I used of uh, MRI scans of brain tumors. Hmm. And there was a study published in the journal Nature last year in 2022, uh, which is just phenomenal. So 71 institutions around the world, six continents, shared an algorithm on their patient data, but no patient data ever moved. So everybody was in compliance with privacy and HIPAA and, and whatever the case may be. 71 institutions, they uh, generated over 6,000 images. It's a, it's a brain tumor that's the single most deadly brain tumor to humans, and it's also a rare event. So no one research institution has enough data to generate a good algorithm. But through collaboration, they generated over 6,000 images and they trained an algorithm. And then that algorithm went back to those 71 or 72 institutions. And the improvement in the ability to identify the contours of the tumor so the surgeon could remove it improved by 33%. Wow. And the idea is it's a 33% improvement and no data was shared, no data was aggregated, no data was pooled together. It was through federation. Um, I think that's catching everybody's attention, John. So the question, getting back to the article, is mm -hmm. why aren't we adopting it in BSA AML financial uh, crimes compliance? So um, as, as we uh, tie this up and we will make sure people get to see the article, the use of the word ethics um, is interesting to me because as we, we talked about both offline and, and uh, we started the conversation, as I, as we both agree, we believe that people that are in our space day to day basis, they yes. do have they do have strong ethics that don't always get supported. Not right. that the institution are unethical. That's not the point. It's because of the business aspect. And we see it a lot in the area of de-risking. Right. And I've done a lot of interviews right. with experts in that space where humanitarian groups are struggling big time to get bank access. And it's two reasons. One is because they were considered risky based on their geography potentially, but also yeah. uh, the revenue isn't worth all of the due diligence, which arguably the regulators require, right? So that's right. where you can right. call it ethics, go whatever you want. It's their mission is just different and it shouldn't be. And I think we've been crying right. about that for a long time. That, that, you know, so we need to change that mission. And until we right. do, you're still going to be struggling with the concepts that you've outlined here, right? So um, going back to our last conversation in the, the Economics of Violence, that book, um, geography should have nothing to do with risk. Right, right. right? I agree. A, 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 a risky person is somebody who does risky things, mm -hmm. not somebody who lives in a certain right. part of the world or part of the city or part of town, right? Risk is a behavior um, and it's our inability to measure risk that causes us to do de-risking of broad populations in, in an unfair and unequitable way. Um, what I mean by ethics is what we're finding is in our profession, John, we're having a hard time recru recruiting and retaining the next generation right. because they see that technology and innovation is being adopted in other industries and not in our industry. Um, and ethics, as I'm using it in this article, is a social construct. Mm -hmm. So I think that our industry is on the verge of mass adoption of AI and machine learning technology. It's on the verge. Right. But 
it's a it's a it's a lagging adopter. It's a slow adopter. Um, you know, all of the uh, apps on our phones adopted AI and federated learning a couple years ago, and every day we're not adopting it. Criminals, drug traffickers, human traffickers are getting away with it. So I'm so impatient about us getting adoption, but I think adoption's going to happen. It's going to be kind of like the um, the tipping point argument where uh, once two, three, five marquee institutions adopt, then I think others will follow. Coincidentally, this morning's uh, or this week's news is the Wall Street Journal broke uh, is carrying a story about um, Google is entering the AML market with right. artificial intelligence, with HSBC uh, and Jen Chasky and that team leading the way. I think news like that Right. really is going to help to accelerate the market. And that's what I mean by ethics. Ethics, unfortunately, is not morality. Ethics is the social construct of what are my peers doing? And I think we need to get the um, the standard within the industry of, of adoption of this next generation of technology. And then I think we're going to solve the recruiting and retention problems. And people choose this industry because they actually care about the mission. We need to let them get back to working on the mission. Well, before I let you go, um, one um, sort of general uh, comment in the past has always been on technology, with, with you know whether basic transaction monitoring, surveillance programs, or whatever it is, is that you still you still need some human interaction. Of course, that's yeah. obvious, and you know that much better than I. But to those that think this is sort of a side issue, those that think reliance on AI and machine learning are going to make uh, opportunities less likely. I'm assuming that it, that's not what's going to happen. And if, if, if I'm a grad student today and I've just heard your conversation and I want to help society either in an institution or a firm that works with institutions, what do you suggest I learn to be valuable in this space? So as, as a career path, you know, does it have to be, I know in the old days it was lawyers and compliance people, and I know that sort of faded out. So what would you suggest to people that are thinking about this and how they could be a, a strong part of it? Yeah. First of all, if if you care and you have a passion for the industry, then then absolutely please come into our industry. We, you know, uh, it, it's really meaningful and important work. The, the skills I think you need are um, log into uh, chat GPT, and set up an account, it's free, and log in, and this goes for John, you, and everybody listening. If you don't have an account, log in, get a free account, um, and use it every day. There's a skill to interacting with an AI, and it has nothing to do with math. I don't, you don't need to go learn in linear algebra. Um, five years ago, I might have told you, go, you know, go do an online course in machine learning. Don't need to do it anymore. You don't need it. Just log on and interact with an AI and get a sense for how you, you're, you're kind of programming. You're programming through natural language. You're asking questions, you're getting answers, you're asking questions, you're getting answers, and you you drive the AI into a certain direction. So learn how to interact with the technology as a non-math person, as a non-coding person, um, and be curious um, because that's how we're going to have a big impact in this in this space. 
Gary Schiffman, thank you so much. The article is, is not the algorithm, it's the ethics, the Journal of Financial Compliance, volume six, number three, which we'll make available uh, to folks. And you should follow, follow Gary on social media. He's very active in LinkedIn and other spaces. Really appreciate this. And uh, I think we have a key panel for next year's forum uh, that you're going to run. <laughs> and, and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll get some of the, besides yourself, best and the brightest to be part of that conversation. So uh, really it. appreciate your time, Gary. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.